Some time ago, I came across a newspaper article about the Islamic Republic of Iran that carried the title, The Not-So-Shia State. Now, in that article, the author points out that even though Iran is officially 99.5% Muslim, people are leaving the religion in huge numbers. And one of the main beneficiaries of this development is Christianity. You all the rights here in this article. For Father Mansour, Christianity in Iran has all the excitement of the persecuted early church. In homes across the country, he delivers his sermons in code, calling Jesus Jamjid. He leads songs of praise in silence. We lip sync because we can't worship out loud, he says. The risks are great. Proselytization is banned. Dozens of missionaries have been jailed. But so too are the spiritual rewards. Local pastors report hundreds of secret churches attracting hundreds of thousands of worshipers. Evangelicals claim Christianity is growing faster in Iran than in any other country. Now what's happening in Iran might quite resonate quite well with what's happening in many other restricted countries. It might resonate quite well with what's happening in Cuba, that the church is growing amidst of persecution. Now after having studied for several weeks, maybe now five, six weeks, the book of Acts, should this really surprise us? Should it really surprise us that the church grows in the midst of persecution? When we look at the chapters, chapter 1 to chapter 7, we can notice that the early church grows through external and internal challenges and pressures. For instance, at Pentecost, when the apostles and the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. People who are nearby start to ridicule them, laugh at them, and say, no, you guys are drunk, and discredit the apostles. But Paul gets up, sorry, sorry, Peter gets up, delivers us a message, and thousands of people believe. Then a little bit later, Peter and John kill a person in the temple precinct. For that, they get in trouble with the Sanhedrin to the extent that they are forbidden to speak about Jesus, that they are threatened to stop the movement. But instead, what's happening? The church grows even more. Then there is internal conflict. There's a conflict over the distribution of food to the widows, and the Greek speakers complain that their widows are overlooked. Something that could easily fragment fracture the church, causes fragmentation, and maybe its end, is overcome by the apostles, and the church grows. Each time there's a challenge, the early church overcomes it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we come to the end of chapter 7, after the execution of Stephen, the church faces its greatest challenge yet. Persecution starts in Jerusalem, and believers are driven away and scattered across the countryside. Now what is going to happen? Will this be the end of the church? Of course not. By now we know that the church grows through persecution or in the midst of persecution. 
And so the gospel spreads to Samaria. Philip, not one of the twelve, but one of the seven who had been chosen along with Stephen to take care of the food distribution, has a fantastic ministry in Samaria, which is backed up with a visit from the apostle from Jerusalem. Samaritans are being saved, are being baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. And then Philip, he's off to a special mission. And that is our text for today. Acts chapter 8, verse 6 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer he is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Asidus, and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. I think this text is raising at least three questions. How do you share the gospel from a scroll from the book of Isaiah? Traditionally, it came because the book is so long in two scrolls. Chapter 1 to 33 and 34 to 66. So how do you share the gospel from that book? And then second, why takes the eunuch the initiative to be baptized? Now that sounds a little bit of a weird question. Why do you want to be, not be baptized? But in the previous chapters, it is, for instance, or the, the apostles who called people on to be baptized. Or it just says in the text, and such and such people were baptized. But in this case, it is almost as if the eunuch demands, he takes the step, I want to be baptized, baptize me now. And then third, who is the main character in this passage? Is it Philip? Is it the eunuch? Or is it somebody else? 
Well, let's, let's tackle the first question. How do you share the gospel from the book of Isaiah? More specifically, because we know the passage he's reading, that's from uh, chapters 52 and 53, from a scroll that's from 34 to 66. So that's at least what we know. Maybe he had also the other scroll. Then we have even more to work with. How do you share the gospel from that passage? Well, this passage is taken from, from a, a segment that's called The Song of the Suffering Servant. That's Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 to chapter 53, verse 12. And from this passage, Philip can easily retell Christ's passion, his resurrection, and his atoning work of sin. He can point out in different verses and, 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 and parts of verses that, that Jesus was rejected by, not just by the authorities, but by almost everyone in Jerusalem. But he was innocent, that he was put on trial like a criminal and executed with criminals. That he was buried in the grave of a rich man, an unused rock-cut tomb. But that God vindicated him. He came back to life and rose. And he can explain this all, that this all happened for the atoning of our sin. But I don't think that Philip stopped there. Because just in Samaria, where he preached the good news of the kingdom and the name of Jesus, I think he delivered the whole deal to the Ethiopian. And it was easy to do with the scroll from the book of Isaiah. Maybe, maybe he continued saying, look, you know, this all started when a man appeared, John the Baptist, and said, I am the voice crying in the wilderness, and then pointing to Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. That's when this great plan of salvation, God's long-promised plan, started to get going. Then a little bit later, Jesus himself revealed that he would be the one who brings this about. When he read Isaiah, a verse from Isaiah 58 in 61 in the synagogue in Nazareth, he said, I will be the one who will lead in a new act people out of exile, out of the exile of darkness and sin. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and so on. And so Philip would have said no, and then he gathered 12 close followers, and they, along with many other men and women, followed him for three years and did see everything he did. They are witnesses, what he said and did, and finally he led them to Jerusalem. There he died on the cross, but just as he's shown you from this suffering servant passage, that was not the end. That was actually only the beginning, because after he came back, from the grave, he told his followers, now it's your turn to continue the mission. I'm sending you out to preach the gospel. And so Philip could then take Isaiah again and point out what has happened so far. He couldn't point out that David's kingdom is being or at least the start of being rebuilt. 
the pouring of the Spirit, the inclusion of the diaspora Jews, his ministry in Samaria, that Samaria would come back and be reunited with Judah. All these things he easily point out from passages from Isaiah, even just from chapter 34 to 66. And as he was doing this, they come to Isaiah chapter 56. And if by now it has not become personal for the Ethiopian eunuch, I believe once they started reading 56, it becomes very, very personal. In Isaiah 56, starting in verse 3, it says, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, who hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And I think when they read this, the eunuch realizes I'm part of this plan. This passage talks about me. I'm part of it. I can become a full member of the people of God and now I want to be baptized. And this is the answer to our second question. The Ethiopian was a Gentile. And so, have done, in order to become a Jew, everything what was required. Keeping the law, keeping all the Sabbath, doing the pilgrimage feasts, doing the sacrifices, everything. But he could not take the last step that was required to convert to Judaism. And that was a ritual bath, something like a baptism. He could not take this because of his emasculation. When he reads this passage, he knows, I'm part of it. Now I can. And so he wants to be baptized. Now that brings us to our third question. Who is the main character in this passage? Is it Philip? Is it the eunuch? Or is it somebody else? Well, I suggest to you that it is somebody else. That it is God, or more specifically, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. The literary structure of this short passage convincingly leads us to this conclusion. The passage starts with God, or, the, or with the angel of the Lord and Holy Spirit getting in action, and then it closes with the Holy Spirit taking Philip to somewhere else. And in the middle of this passage is the word of God, scripture they read. So God is kind of framing in the form of the Holy Spirit, the action, and in the center, God's word. And Philip, he's just following along. He's following the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Well, that actually raises a fourth question, which I'm not going to answer today, but this question will be answered as we continue to read in the book of Acts and so in the following chapters and the following Sundays. Namely, that is the question. Up to this point, 
keeping in mind that the Ethiopian is a Gentile. There's no clear indication that Gentiles are really included in God's plan of salvation. And also because he is an Ethiopian, from a Greco-Roman point of view, this is kind of Ethiopia, or where he probably comes from what's today Sudan, or Ethiopia, Eritrea, kind of the southern end of the known world. So this was kind of the end of the world where they're supposed to bring the mission, right? But so far, the gospel barely got out of the door. It was Jerusalem and then a little bit into Samaria. So the question that text raises as the fourth question, I believe, is what else, what other unexpected things is the Holy Spirit going to do? What other fantastic things are going to happen when the Holy Spirit is allowed to flow freely and the disciples follow its prompting and do what the Spirit tells them? So what are some takeaways for us from this story? Well, first, it is obvious that the church grows in the midst of persecution. Do I believe the disciples asked to be persecuted? I think so. Did they intentionally do some provocative things to be persecuted? I don't think so either. But they were preaching the gospel... They stood up for it and were willing to face the consequences. And by the power of of the Holy Spirit, they overcame each challenge that arose. To me, it appears that the gospel is like the dandelion in my backyard in my front lawn. Each time I thought I got rid of it, it comes back even worse. And I'm pretty sure that if Jesus would have ministered in our time... One of his parables would have sounded like this. The kingdom of God is like the dandelion. And so on and so on. Well, as a second takeaway, I think it is really advantageous to know your Bible. It is really advantageous that Philip knows the scripture. When he walks up to the eunuch and they get into a conversation, he doesn't say, well, you know, I also have always wondered my whole life what this passage is all about. I have no idea. And then they get together, pull the ignorance, and just come up with some story. No, he knows scripture and can explain it. And then finally, I think, as a takeaway for us is, I'm wondering how many people are out there who are interested in the gospel, who who might be even want to hear a message of redemption and new beginnings, but feel inadequate and feel that they will never be accepted as full members, as full Christians by the evangelical community. Now, I'm wondering what would happen if we would allow the Holy Spirit to flow freely and listen to its prompting. Now, I'm wondering what would happen if we... The Spirit to move freely. What would happen in our church, in our community? If we would allow the Holy Spirit to flow freely 
and to listen to its prompting and do what the Holy Spirit asks of us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these stories in the book of Acts. We can learn and see how, how the church started and what challenges they were facing and what challenges they overcame and how they responded to the things in their time. And particularly in this passage, how, how Philip responded to your prompting. And I pray that, that we allow the Holy Spirit to flow in the same way, that we're listening and that we're hearing and, and acting upon it. Heavenly Father, I pray as we're now taking our offering, that just as with, with words, that we also work through deeds in our daily life, but also with the means we have given to us to further your kingdom, to further the mission, whether it is here in Wainwright or in Alberta, or as we heard in Mexico, Cuba, that we follow your lead and follow wherever you are leading us in all areas of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.